So today we'll talk a little bit about not politics but Jewish leadership. What it means to be a leader, specifically a Jewish leader. The reason for that is because the parsha deals with a begins opens up with a clash between the two leaders of the Jewish people at the time. We're used to and this week's parshas, uh, starting from Vayeshev all the way through Vayechi, an underwriting, an undercurrent theme is one of who's the leader of the Jewish people. Yosef's having dreams, dreams of being a king. Next week's parsha, Yaakov says, Yehuda, all your brothers will acknowledge <coughs> your leadership role. And there are two undercurrents of kingship, of royalty, that, that cross through all these parshas here. And it kind of reaches a climax in Parshas Vayigash, where there's actually a clash between, in the, in the opening sukkim, in fact, the opening word, Vayigash Elov Yehuda. And Yehuda approaches. Yosef. At this time, of course, Yehuda doesn't realize that it's Yosef that he's approaching. But Yehuda demonstrates remarkable courage, bravery, and leadership. In fact, the word Vayigash, which means to approach, Chazal say, was more than just an approach, it was actually a confrontation. Vayigash, he confronts him. So, there's an interesting uh, medrash on this based on a um, on a posik in Tehillim which we recite every Monday in the Yom Kapitel Mem Ches in Tehillim talks about literally starts off discussing the greatness of Jerusalem the holy mountain and it says that in God's palaces referring to Yerushalayim in the base of Migdash, it's a fortress, and the Pesach says, for behold, the kings assemble, they, they gather together, or they pass through together, they, they see it, came to Mo, and indeed they marvel, they're wondering, they become confused, they become frightened. Ru'odo ochozosom a trembling overtakes them there. Chil kayoleda, a shaking or a quaking, like a woman giving childbirth. This is from the Yom that we recite Monday after Olenu. Sounds a little familiar. Yeah, it's Kapitel Mem Chesen Tehillim. So the Medrash homiletically darshans, what does it mean? Ki nehamalochim no adu ovru yachtov heimaro keintomo nevhalu nechpazu. Behold, the kings are assembled, they pass through together, they're wondering, confused, and frightened. So if you look on the top right, the Medrash Rabba darshans that it refers to the confrontation 
of Yosef and Yehuda. Pasik says, he says, top right, Vayigashel of Yehuda, Yehuda approached Yosef, Kihine Hamlochim Noadu of Yachdov. So the Medrash makes a play on the word of rather than the word of meaning to pass. It comes from the word evra, like in the word evra vosam, which means anger, which means hostility and, and an angry confrontation. As if to say, Behold, the kings have, have assembled, have shown themselves. These are the two kings, Yehuda and Yosef. Both are considered Jewish leaders and Jewish kings. Here the Medrash translates it not as that they're passing along together, but from confrontation, anger. They're having a hostile confrontation. The next passage, that they become fear grabs a hold of them there that refers to the spectators Elu Hashvotim these are the tribes watching in amazement and in wonder at what's going to happen during these two kings clashing it's as we can say euphemistically it was a clash of titans what happens when that happens Amru they say look see how kings are fighting with each other and quarreling with each other what is our role? It is proper for kings to confront other kings. This is what, again, the same Pasuk. Oh, well, this is the Medrash's interpretation of the Pasuk that we quoted earlier. It's from the Medrash Rabbah. So therefore, Yehuda, and again, we see that starting from Pasha's Vayeshev, Yosef's already having a dream, a dream of kingship. Yet we find that Yehuda takes over much of the leadership role. But it's like two strands of leadership. In the past we've discussed how these two strands of leadership in the Jewish people play themselves out historically in, of course, Mashiach ben Yosef, ultimately in Mashiach ben David. There's a Mashiach that comes from the house of David there's a Mashiach that comes from the house of Yosef. And actually the one that's considered a permanent king, of course, is Mashiach ben David. Mashiach ben Yosef, contrary to what one would expect from these parshas, does not establish a monarchy that's considered lasting in the Jewish people. In next week's parsha, when Yaakov gives a bracha to, uh, to all of the brothers, it's Yehuda that he seems to place at the helm of Jewish people historically. During the, over there you have on page 121, on page 121 you have Yaakov saying, out of all the brothers, he says it to Yehuda, Yehuda ato yoducha You Yehuda, to you all the brothers will acknowledge, acknowledge sovereignty. Again, that has to do with his valor in war, but 
your sons of your father, your brothers will all bow down to you. And the Pasuk Yud, Lo Yosr Shevet the Yehuda, the scepter shall never depart from Yehuda. Until ultimately all the nations will become subservient to him when the Shiloh comes. That's interesting because uh, it says that all the nations will you know, bow down to him. That's what Yosef's dream was. Yeah, yeah. Yosef yeah. dreamed that, and indeed Yosef's dream was fulfilled. But that's how we find rather oddly that at the same time that there was this undercurrent. Uh, while Yosef was rising to power, there was this Yehuda um, monarchy going on as well. In fact, many of the Mephorshim explain that a great deal of the confrontation and the reason why the brothers thought of Yosef as being a usurper is because they recognized the fact that monarchy belongs to not Yosef, but to Yehuda. So they saw Yosef as a usurper. So here we have a confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef. Interestingly enough, later on in Jewish history, when the monarchy breaks into two, and Israel breaks into two kingdoms, there's the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of, of Judea. The kingdom of Israel is, is, is led by the kings from the household of Yeroboam uh, ben Nebuchadnezzar, from Yosef. Even the first king in a sense, when the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, was Yehoshua. Yehoshua was a descendant of Yosef. So you find that Yosef did produce a line of kings, but apparently it's Yehuda's line of kings that became the permanent feature. Ultimately, you have Mashiach from Yosef, and you have Mashiach from Yehuda. So I'm not going to go into the mystical implications of what this means. We've, we've, we've discussed it in other occasions in the past. But Yehuda, now Yehuda approaches and he shows his colors and the way the Medrash describes it is it was a clash of royalty. Two kings and both were fit to be king. Both Yehuda and Yosef. What is... Who was presently king at that time? Who? Yehuda? Yeah. In the, yes, in the sense that his, amongst his brothers he was. And he um, was a ruler of sorts. Yehuda was the one that was sent before to go down and to set up Goshen. He seemed to have established a certain leadership role and he seemed to have displayed, certainly in this, his bravery was such, he displayed leadership qualities. But then again, so did Yosef. So we're not going to explore now the difference between what monarchy and and royalty descending from Yosef versus royalty descending from Yehuda was all about, which is a subject matter in and of itself to explore what these two lines of kingship were about. But let's talk generally about Jewish leadership. Elections are about to uh, happen in Israel in a few weeks' time, and we're used to the idea of uh, elections and democracy and monarchy and Jewish leaders and Jewish kings. What are some of the qualities of Jewish leadership? That's what I'd like to discuss what Jewish leadership and being a king amongst Jews is all about. Now, there is a um, there is another 
point that we should really make before we even explore that. And that goes back to a Rashi in Parshas Vayeshev. In Parshas Vayeshev, where on the one hand Yosef is having his dreams, and Yosef is then sold into slavery, and who's the one that is the prime mover behind Yosef's sale into slavery? Was none other than Yehuda. And the rest of Parshas Vayeshev deals with two episodes in the life of Yehuda and, and Yosef, and it's interesting the way the Torah juxtaposes it, almost as if it wants to contrast those two episodes. One is Yosef faced with the temptation of Ashes Potiphera and how he reacts to it in a very positive way, at least religiously speaking. And he shows also great religious courage and integrity. And then we have the story of Yehuda with his daughter-in-law, Tomar. And that really becomes the centerpiece of most of Parshas Vayeshev. It begins with the sale of Yosef. It begins with the dreams of Yosef. So Parshas Vayeshev is really where you find the kernels of this whole issue of Jewish monarchy. Yosef's having dreams, dreams of grandeur, dreams that his father recognized as being truthful, as being true dreams. Yet the brothers saw that as a usurpation and they saw them as delusions of grandeur. Not dreams of grandeur, but delusions of grandeur. And the brothers led by Yehuda, who was already somewhat of a leader apparently, sell Yosef into slavery. Then the rest of the parsha is about Yehuda with Tamar and Yosef with Ashes Potiphera. Now there's an interesting Rashi. Pasik Chavav, Perglamatches, page 94. After the um, incident with Yehuda and Tamar, where she, where she develops, starts developing a child and is pregnant, and she, um, rather than embarrassing her father-in-law, she just sends the, the proof of who the one that impregnated her was. So Yehuda, upon seeing that it's Vayakir Yehuda, Yehuda recognizes that he's the one that impregnated her. Vayomer, and he says, Tzotko mimeni. She is more righteous than I. Or Tzotko, now the word mimeni is a little difficult to translate. Because mimeni means from me. As if he's saying, Tzotko, she's right, mimeni, it's from me. Rashi comments on that. If you look in Rashi, in the second column, third line, Mimeni him She got pregnant from me. Chazalo darshan the following. She yotso baskol, a baskol emanate v'omro, and Hashem, so to speak, said, Mimeni, it's from me. Umeiti, and it's from my yotso advarm that all these events occurred. She was a worthy candidate because of her tznias to become the mother of royalty. Gozarti, I decreed that king should come from her. And I had decreed that king should rise 
should arise from the house of Yehuda. The Medrash that Rashi takes it from adds one other component to this. Uh, if you just want to see the quotation of the Medrash, turn the page in the upper right and you'll see there the quote from Rashi and then three lines into the quote you have the addition of the Medrash. Omer lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem, so to speak, said to Yehuda, Ato Yehuda Hoidisa B'maisa Tomar. You, Yehuda, admitted your guilt in this incident with Tomar. Therefore, Yoducha Achecha, again, the word Yoducha Achecha comes from the Pasik that we quoted earlier from Parshas Vayichi in the blessing of Yaakov to, uh, to Yehuda. We quoted that Pasik. That was the one on page, um, uh, what was that? That was on page 121. Yehuda Atta your brothers will acknowledge you. Leos Melachalim, you'll be king. What Chazal are pointing out in this Medrash is that they're placing the cause and effect of why God granted monarchy to Yehuda back to this to this incident with Yehuda and Tomer and the way Yehuda acted. Yehuda admitted his wrongdoing. Hashem says, you admitted, therefore the word the word Yoducha to be Hoda, Hoda's admission. Right? It's an expression that we find very often to be moda, moda alo emes, to admit modem anachloch. We say the brach of modem. The word moda means to admit or to acknowledge. That's what the word moda means to admit, to acknowledge. Yehuda, you are moda, vayaker Yehuda. Yehuda conceded that he was the guilty one and he said words that were, were very uh, meaningful in the sense of an admission of guilt saying she's right and I'm wrong if you're able to admit that to you shall your brothers admit the word admit over there would be better translated as acknowledge they will acknowledge your superiority as being the king. You're the king. It seems, again, but that's an aside. What Yehuda gave to Tamar, he gave her his seal, his staff, and his cloak. Symbolically, these are three trappings of three symbols of monarchy. The signet ring, the seal, the the staff, which is what you're saying, the scepter, and the cloak would be the royal robe. Could be unintentionally, he was signifying to her, you're the queen. You're going to be the mother of royalty from you is going to emanate the kings. But the fact that he admitted it, says the Medrash, becomes cause for later on the admission of his brothers and his acknowledgement that he should be king. Now it's interesting that we find that Yehuda and Yosef in these two incidents there's a lot of contrast between the way they reacted. Usually 
Yosef is praised for his reaction to his test. And Yehuda very often is superficially viewed as why well, he gave into temptation and and take a look, Yosef was a paradigm of virtue, and Yehuda gave in to his baser instincts. Yet, on deeper examination, we find how Chazal praised Yehuda for coming out of it with this, with this ability to admit guilt. Yosef displayed great strength of character. Yehuda displayed a different kind of strength of character. The strength of character of people that make mistakes and own up to it. Now, there are two pieces on this that are very, very similar. I'm going to go through both of them with you inside. One is from, actually, one piece is from a father and the other is from the son. One is taken from Rabbi Yosef Leib Loch, one of the Rosh Shivas of Tells Lithuania. And the other is from his son, Rebellion Mayor Bloch, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Tells in Cleveland, a generation later. So they're both basically going to say the exact same thing. But first we'll take a look at the, at the core one, and then we'll just review it by looking at the other one. So we're going to first go with the son's piece. That will be on the second side, on the right. It's a briefer piece, taken from the Sefer Pnine Das. And then we'll take a look at a synopsis of what it says in the Shi'ure Das. That's from the father. First, let's take a look at the Fnine Das. And here he tells us that from this we could learn what Jewish leadership is about. Contrasted, of course, to nowadays and to elections in general and politicians. So let's take a look at side two, at the piece from Revolume Bloch and Fnine Das on the top right. Let's first understand what does it mean to be a king that they place such great emphasis on about being a king. We know Yosef dreamed about this. We talk about all of these, these dreams of grandeur and kingship. What is this about? The brothers on account of it became so outraged and incensed and jealous that they actually wanted to kill him. They sold him to slavery. What is this thing, this idea of Jewish leadership that bothered them so intensely? Yaakov, on the other hand, was anxiously anticipating and awaiting the fulfillment of this dream. What is this dream of kingship all about? We tend to nowadays view who is a king? Someone with a mighty army and a mighty kingdom. A king to us is defined by his trappings of power. Someone that has vast rulership or country, the Amrav, a great nation, that listen to his, to his dictates. The more powerful the king, the greater the country, 
and the more people are subservient to him. Laman Chazoik Mim and to establish his ruling and his throne, Yeshlo Chayolim Zuyonim, he has armed soldiers, a great army, Hamatilim Emosal B'nai Medina, people fear him and respect him, and they're inspired and awestruck by his might and power. That's the way we view what a king, a mighty king, is about. But when one really looks into deeper, this person is not, in essence, a king. He is not at his core a king in and of himself. He's only a king by virtue of other people calling him king. He's dependent and highly so on others. It's almost like in congregations where the board chooses the rabbi, the rabbi is not the leader, the rabbi is dependent on the board. And politicians in general, we see this constantly nowadays, are really dependent on the people that put them into power. Politicians certainly are dependent on the electorate, electorate and those politicians that have to go to elections every two years and election campaigns take about one year I mean, Congress people I mean they're constantly they're literally if not they claim to be servants of the people they're not sub, they're not servants of the people but they're certainly subservient to the people in the sense that they are constantly doing that which is going to ingratiate them to the electorate as opposed to a dictator, but not completely. Because a dictator in and of himself is not powerful. It's only because he's beholden to the people that are keeping him in power and keeping everybody else under his thumb. The moment that they rebel, he's always dictator. The Shah of Iran was deposed like nothing. Even the Soviet leaders eventually saw that they themselves aren't as powerful as they thought they are. I mean, uh, Noriega, I mean, all, you go through the history of the, uh, the Sandinistas, the, all the great dictators, the moment that people woke up and said, the emperor has no clothes, indeed he had no clothes. When he falls out of, so it's really almost like a house of cards stacked up that as long as everything fits right, but he's always looking over his shoulders. We think of Saddam Hussein as a person who's a great dictator that has all power. On the other hand, Saddam spends sleepless nights. He's always, always worried as to who his enemies are and who he has to worry about and who may depose him and who's getting too powerful and who he has to constantly keep an eye on. He never has security because his power, as vast and as awesome as it looks, is really dependent on others. It's not self-contained. And therefore, even dictators and even so-called kings are at the will and favor of others. Throughout history, we've seen regimes and, and monarchies of hundreds of years instantly falling because of that. I mean, in the 1600s, 
that was, I don't know, what was the King Edward, who was the, who was the king that was killed by Cromwell. And uh, for the next hundred years, there was no kings until they decided to bring some German back and start a new line. And who's the line of the, the Germans? The Windsors. Of course, their name was not Windsor. How did they get the name Windsor? During World War One. During World War One, where nobody liked the uh, German name of the king. Originally, what was it? Hanover or something like that. And then they had some other German name. And uh, 1914, when Germany was the enemy. And if you go into a restaurant in the United States and you ask for a hamburger, they'd uh, look at you like you're a traitor. And that's where the word Salisbury steak comes from. Because rather than say hamburger, which is German, they change it to Salisbury steak. In England, the king of England was afraid and embarrassed of his last name. So he switched it to Windsor in 1914. In other words, they're scared of the people. And to this day, English monarchy is certainly very dependent that they don't want to fall out of favor of the people. They do ice monarch. So this was true throughout history. Whether your, your last name was um, 16, 17, or whatever your last name was, and your first name was Louis, then also the same thing. You know, you're king, tomorrow you're not king. It depends what the people do. And this was true with the Louis and with the kings of absolute monarch, they were called, right? Divine right of kings in France, in England, in all these places. But deposed instantly because you're completely dependent on the trappings of power on others. Are those others the electorate like it is today in a democracy where you're constantly taking polls? Or is it based on soldiers and you know whoever was powerful? I mean, Saddam, I don't know the workings of Iraq, but I am sure that Saddam Hussein is very, very scared constantly. That's why he has to have his son in power. In fact, they're, they're scared of their own kids. Very often, these kings are scared of their own children. And they can't sleep at night because they have to worry about their children. So are they really kings in and of themselves? Or are they completely dependent on others for their power? We, the observer, wow, what a mighty king. But what's going through his mind? How, where is he sleeping at night? Does he have to move from place to place? You know, take a look at Yasser Arafat, chairman of the PLO, all-powerful survival for 20, 30 years. And slowly but surely you see how everything implodes on him. And he's in this, what's it called? Kata, whatever it's called. And the Israelis like peel away one layer after the other. They knock off one building. Until finally by the end he's like sitting in an outhouse and that's the last remaining building that's over there. But what keeps him in power is his complete subservience on others. And he could go from one night to the next night, not sleeping in the same place, always afraid what's going to be tomorrow. He has to make sure that this guy doesn't get too powerful, that guy doesn't get too powerful. He's always worried about his power. Their entire lives are devoted to maintaining their power. Are they really kings? Yeah, they're, they're trying to be kings but their whole life centers on this pursuit of power and this attempt to constantly remain king. So the truth is, this is not a true king. It's not a king innately. 
he's only a king because his servants and the people that keep him in power say so, you're still king. Take a look at what happened in, in the many major regimes from how the Persians conquered the, the Babylonians. One day he's king and the Balshats are celebrating uh, whatever it is and there's handwriting on the wall. You lost your power. Lost your power? What are you talking about? Yeah, that night was a palace coup and it's all over and done with monarchies and, and, and regimes and, and lines of leadership can just go in an instant. She says, Ein melech beliam kim malchuso as we just pointed out how fast he could lose his entire kingdom. Because his kingdom is derived from others. He's dependent on them. He's, he needs others. He's actually subservient to them. He looks like a king. I mean, again, the best example this is the Windsors. How totally they are dependent on the goodwill of the masses. That they can't even say anything politically. They they, they can barely they barely have a right to say their opinions on anything. You have to be so careful at each word that they say. That's a king. You can't even say what you want to say. <coughs> Trent Lott. We know what happened to him now. He made a statement. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's worried about his future. He can't even talk. It's a conversation. He said, "Oh wow, I wish you would have won the elections in 1945." What an innocent statement. I wish you would have won the elections in 1948, but my power as Senate Majority Leader is dependent on a stupid sentence statement that he made. I mean, like, so what? You made that sentence. You know what? Your whole future and your leadership role is dependent on that, so you're a leader. What kind of leader is it that he can't even say what he wants to say? The Windsors in England can't talk politics. They can't say their opinion on anything. They're kings. Sure, it looks like kings because you go to Buckingham Palace and you see the changing of the guard and you see uh, Queen Elizabeth and then they're wearing the crowns. The crown isn't theirs. Where do they get the crown from? It comes from the Tower of London and stacked away with all the other jewels. Every once in a while, you're coronated once in your life. They pull it out. They take out the, uh, the, the crown. They take out the scepter and the, whatever it's called, the, the hope of Africa. I don't know, whatever it's called. But they take out these big diamonds and you get a right to walk around with it pretending that you're king. As soon as you're finished, they take it, lock it up again. And for two bucks, you walk into the Tower of London and you can see it all yourself the same way they could see it. Because it's locked under glass. So what kind of king is that? Uh, they say, you know what, I feel like playing around with my diamonds. <coughs> can you imagine, um, you know, Charles says, I'd like to play with the crown. I want to play king. You bring me my crown. I want to walk around the palace with my crown. Oh, no, you can't do that. It's in the Tower of London. So they don't even have their jewels. They don't have enough. They have a lot of money that's because they made sure to squirrel away for themselves as much money as they could. But where's that come from? It comes from the people. The crown comes from the people. The coronation comes from the people. They can't have any opinions. They can't say what they believe about anything. They... Again, we, we know, of course, they're powerless, but I'm just using them as an example of what it means to be so dependent on others that you have to be scared about what comes out of your mouth. You people here in this room have greater independence than they do. You could say what you feel like saying. They can't say what they feel like saying. 
So what kind of king is this? You're so dependent on others, you're an Evet. That's what it means to be an Evet. So he quotes here a very famous pshat from Yisrael Salanter. This is not Revali Meir Bloch, Revali Meir Bloch, Shari Das. Dear boy, there's a mimer, al ikvus of the Mashiach, the Gemara, that you're referring to, more incited, that says that before Mashiach comes, Pnei Hadork, Pnei Akelev, the face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. So he gives the example, Kasheroim Eglo Noisats, Vakelev Roslov, and now you see a wagon traveling, and you see the dogs running before the wagon. You look at it, again, by the trappings of the way our eyes teach us. It looks like the dog's out in front, and the wagon is out and back. Someone standing on the side. It's the dog that's leading the show. Isn't he the one running in front? It's when you get to the crossroads and you have to make a difficult decision to go this way or that way, the dog stops, turns around to see which way the wagon's going to go, and then again proceeds to run out in front of it. That's when you can see who the real manig is, who's, who's leading the show. It's the guy in the wagon choosing to go right or left. The dog just looks around to see which way to follow and then runs out and head. That's what it means, says Rabbi Hador. The face of the generation, Pnei Hador, is very often found as a euphemism for the leaders, the leaders of the generation. the leaders. They're not going to be true leaders that lead based on a correct uh, assessment of right and wrong. They're always going to be turning around to see which way the community and the congregation and the people are going. We take a look at Bush. Does Bush president, and he's a very powerful president, does he really, really want to criticize Trent Lott. He doesn't even want to criticize him. I'm sure he doesn't. I'm, I'm convinced that Bush would rather the whole thing blows over and he doesn't want to criticize Trent Lott. But he sees the way the country is going that everybody's criticizing him for that stupid remark that he made. So he has to go out the front. So he runs out front and he says, yes, I think it's wrong what he did and immoral and whatever else it is. Oh, everybody says, oh, look, the leadership is, what leadership? He's a follower, he's not a leader. He just sees which way the winds are blowing. So he runs out in front and says the same thing. Like the dog, looking around which way the wagon's going to go, but it always then runs out in front, pretending to lead. All of our leaders are pretend leaders, especially in our generation. Uh, no one took this to a higher level of perfection than, than our former president, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was driven by polls. Everything. Polling was the mainstay of his presidency. He always had secret polls, internal polls. Which way? Oh, Saddam, I mean, he's the one that, I remember he said this a few years back, that Saddam Hussein is the worst person since Adolf Hitler in Machshavah. So what do you do about it? Gornish. At the time, that was the sentiment. He ran out front saying these kinds of things. And when people forgot about it, because the, the, the public is fickle, he forgot about it. 
in the beginning of his presidency, the main thing was uh, welfare reform. Welfare reform, everybody heard about welfare reform constantly from him. Until people forgot about it, he forgot about it. I mean, he was driven by polls. To be driven by polls is to run a country, like the dogs always turning around to see which way the match, and then he runs out in front. All of our leadership is but this is true to a greater or lesser extent with all these leaders. They're totally dependent on others as to which way the public sentiment and the winds are blowing. They then run out in front and they do that. So, next paragraph. Before Mashiach comes, there won't be any real leadership. Nobody's genuine. Everyone's a fraud. Everyone is phony. Everyone's a fake. They're all looking to see which way the winds are blowing, which way public sentiment. She said that's the way it is nowadays. These are one of the simonim that, uh, whatever. As long as a person is alive, physically, a person living physical life almost inevitably always worried about what other people are going to say. You're worried about image. It's actually a psychological condition about this called social phobia. People are just like so caught up with image that their lives aren't lives. They're constantly worried about what people are going to say. They have no independent thoughts. They have no independent action. Everything that they do is based on my young rough dreams, what people are going to say. And therefore, he's not a leader. He can never be a leader. He's led by others. If a person displays and exhibits true leadership by fighting the battle for what's right, independent of what others may think, then you could become a true king yourself, which others could then accept. To the more you're able to override thoughts of public sentiment and allow yourself to be driven by others, the more sure the king you really are. In other words, to become a true king, you have to first conquer yourself. It's not others. You have to be in firm control of yourself. Let's take a little bit of a detour right now to Parashas Nasa. In Parashas Nasa, that's in Bamidbar on page on page 348 on the bottom of the page Vaidabra Shemo Moshlemo to lines from the bottom. Isha, Isha man or a woman. 
If a person wants to express a vow of nothinghood, to become a nothing to Hashem, and it then goes on to explain what it means to be a nothing, what the Lord are, and the prophet says later on, on page 349, because the nazer of God is on head. What is the meaning of a Nazir? What is the meaning of the word Nazir? What does it mean? So, Tarkamunkos and Rashi and those proportion explain that the word Yafli is a form of, of expression. If a person explicitly states and expresses himself, that's what the word Yafli Come to Ebenezer, and the Ebenezer says a nupsha. Well, the word Yafli is related to the word Tela, a wonder, like a miracle. Ishki Yafli means a man who does something wondrous. Not a man who expresses, but a man who does something wondrous. He also explained that the word Nazir doesn't mean separation, but it comes from the word, what does it mean, Nazir Rosho? It refers to the crown. A crown of kingship. Look on the lower left, this little blurb from the Ebenezer. Yafli. So he explains, explains, first Yafish to express. But then he says the second shot. He does something wondrous and remarkable. Why is that? He most people, Follow their lust and desire. Neither Nazar says, Perish neither who was Nazar, Ki Nazar, who Torah Hashem, by Nazar, who was a Shiach, he removes himself from the desires of Hashem, and he does this for the sake of God. He then says in the later post, Yeshoimim, Ki Milas Nazar, Nixeras Nezer, or Nazar. It comes from the word crown. Like expressions, he's wearing the nazar of God on his head. They never wrote, because it's not a far-fetched shot to say that the word nazar comes from the word crown. The da, says the Ebenezer, he called the Neodom Abde Tibus Arlam. Most people are servants. Most people are slaves. They're slaves to their desire, slaves to their baser instincts. The Hamnelach, the Emes, the true king, who, who expresses himself as an independent person, as a ruler, the true king that wears the crown on his head, is the person that's able to display self-control for Titus. Not everybody says that that's shot for that. It's a good question, but you'll have to wait for Pashas Nassau for that. If you're asking a question about mother. Not everybody would use it. I'll just briefly answer your question by telling you a whole different shot that Rambam brings down. The sin over there is not for being a Nazir. The sin is that he only made the vow of Naziris temporary. He then goes back to being like everybody else. The sin is leaving Naziris. Not becoming a Nazir, but this Naziring yourself is what the sin is according to Rambam. 
It's only one shot in the Gemara that the Rambam that became very famous that learns that the sin is becoming a Nazar, but even that is not necessarily contradicting this point. A Nazar, therefore, says the Abnezer, is the true king because he displays true leadership by being in firm control. You have to conquer yourself. To become a king, you have to become a king over yourself. Then, you can have all the other trappings of power, and then you're worthy of the trappings of power. It doesn't mean that a king politically is a dictator. That's what you pointed out. A king is dependent on an arm. That's correct. But the person that merits leadership is the person that himself is a self-made king. You could then deserve after your duchachel. Ultimately, what you said before, Richard, is correct. Because even the Pasuk in Parshvay, he says, Hashem says, well, since you admitted your fault, therefore everyone is going to acknowledge that you're king. Because you're, you deserve to be king. Then you indeed become king and everybody admits your superiority. But your superiority doesn't result from trapping the power. It results from true power displayed by true self-control and kingship over oneself. Top of the next column. Therefore, true kingship comes about when a person displays control over his immediate surroundings. To become a true king, you have to be a real king. And the hardest one is to battle yourself. As the great philosopher once said, the Chalas brings down when the warriors returning from war, he told them, he says, you're coming back from the small battle, now you're going to be faced with a large battle. The battle against your baser instincts. That's a battle. And only when you emerge victorious in that are you truly a person of valor. Hazel, Kibor, So the hardest battle is not against outside, it's against the internal foe. Hazel, Kibor, you're able to do that, then you become a true king, says the Ebenezer. The reason why another is called another is because everybody is going against the grain, going against the stream. Most people are slaves, most people are servants. They're, they're subservient to their tithers. The another displays leadership, leadership over himself, control over his tithers. He's a true king. Everybody else is a servant, everybody else is a slave. He's truly independent. He's truly the king, and he wears the crown of kingship. Therefore, to be a king, you have to first control yourself. And if you do that, when a person is able to conquer and rule over your myriad different instincts and you control yourself so completely, which, by the way, Rabbi law was a model of this self-control. He's the one that when people, when he'd walk down the street, people would set their clock on him. He was completely in control of every emotion. He decided when to cry, when to mourn, when not to mourn, when to rejoice. It wasn't natural instinct that took a hold of him. He was in complete control as to when and what instinct he should follow at what time. A person is able to conquer the tens of thousands myriad of different emotions and instincts that he has, and to allow the pure seichel to be in control. He doesn't follow 
his instincts. He doesn't do his actions and activities based on what he feels like doing and based on what his instincts tell him to do and what his desires and lusts tell him to do. All he alumelech, then he become a king. Asherom yotsu mashmato, that people could then listen to him as well. If all of your emotions listen to you, and you're in control of the tens of thousands of instincts and desires that you have, then tens of thousands of people could rightfully place their trust and listen to you as well. This is why the Gemara in Gittin himself says that the rabbis and sages were called kings. The Gemara in Gittin says, Rabbonim equal Rabbonim are called kings. And the Prophet says in the Torah, being Allah is Allah. It is through me that kings are kings. It is through me that kings rule and reign. As if to say, through Torah, you become a king. Ezel Ibra Kovish as Yitzchak. Baras Yitzchara, Baras Torah Tavon. There's a Yitzchara, and the way to conquer it is through the Torah. Be Melochim, Melochim. It is through me that people are able to reign and become kings. Be, through me, through the Torah. Kings reign and rule and become kings. They're the ones they found Hebrew accomplishes Yitzchak because for us it's our Lord's They're the ones in full control. They're the true kings. Therefore the Gemara says, Who are the kings? Sages, the rabbis. Why sages? Not pious people, Tzadikim, because as we said, there are more costly. Without Torah, you're never going to be in full control. You look from, and you can act from, but you're not in complete control. It is only Torah that disciplines a person and teaches him self-control. It is only through Torah that a person learns the art of self-control and to be in complete master of his emotions and thoughts and desires and feelings and emotions. And therefore, it's only the Torah that that gives the person the word therefore it is only a true Torah sage who learns the message and the lessons of the Torah that's able to be this king of full self-control so it's the sages that learn and apply obviously but without Torah that can really be a true pious person without Torah it doesn't mean that people that learn Torah are automatic kings either. It requires a lot of hard work. Being lucky is local, but through Torah, you can become a marker of all the complete control of your life. As a result, we can now understand this clash of titans. Yosef and Yehuda Yosef and Yehuda were the true, um, the true models the paradigms of people in complete control. They ruled over themselves. Primarily, their kingship began with self-control. How's that? Different, different models of self-control that we'll see in a second. You'll see? That's why they're different. Said that there are different kinds of kings. We started off by saying different strands of monarchy are running through the Jewish people. One from the Yosef, one from Yehuda. Because each one exhibited a different display of control, different kind. Abuz, they were Muloch Malatmon kings over themselves. Abuz Zegi Ul Chazal, Zachul Malatmon Chazal say, 
they became worthy of true kingship because of their kingship over themselves. That's the matter says even regarding Yehuda. What did Yehuda do to deserve kingship? When he made the mistake and he gave in because human beings make mistakes, they're fallible. But to publicly admit your fallibility and to own up to your mistakes and to try to not cover up and to suffer public embarrassment requires strength of character. Yes, he also exhibited tremendous strength of character by controlling his lust and by controlling his desire. Yehuda displayed a different kind of self-control by being able to publicly own up and suffer the consequences of public embarrassment and public humiliation by admitting that you are wrong and you made a mistake. What people go through to save face, never clever with the tragedies now in Israel about the father that killed his daughter. They don't exactly yet why. But he loses his job and claims he loves his daughter. People love their children. But when it comes to public humiliation, people do all kinds of wild and crazy things. They kill, they kill their own families, they kill their own loved ones in order to avenge some slight and some wrong. These private people do. There's a whole different type of self-control required for people to be able to publicly own up to their mistakes and to admit their fallibility and their vulnerability. Yosef in secret and private controlled his desire and trust. But Yehuda publicly acknowledged, I was wrong, she was right. That's a very difficult task. To publicly acknowledge it. Comes Hashem and says, you publicly acknowledge that. Your brother will publicly acknowledge that you're there. For your self-control and public admission of what you did, which shows and displays self-control and the willingness to admit one's wrong, to admit one's vulnerability, you're actually invulnerable, invincible. Everyone will admit your superiority publicly because of your public acknowledgement. It's a different display of self-control. Both strands of monarchy are running through the currents of the parshas. There is one form of self-control of Yosef, which is what's called, although we welcome in a sense, between man and God, control of one's desire, control of one's lust. Yosef displayed that. You wouldn't have displayed a different kind of self-control. Yosef also represents the tzaddik that doesn't sin. You would have represented the tzaddik that does sin, but that's true. As I said before, the public and the private, yeah which is more appropriate for being a king. The king is the one that does a public uh, challenge. But, so there's a lot of different messages that go through you with the self-control. Public versus private, between people as opposed to between man and God, control of desire and lust versus control of saving face and life. But there's another very important thing which I'm not going to develop right now, but I just want to point it out. Yosef is the topic that doesn't sin. Yehuda is the tzaddik that sins, but has the strength of character for Judah to come back. Mashiach is about the regaining of Jewish sovereignty after it's been lost. Yosef, once he lost it, he lost it. Yosef displays tremendous courage and self-control 
to be king and monarch, and he is. But eventually, it's not. Yehuda displays the ability of a human being to own up and to return. He should restore the sukkah of David that fell. Like Warren Sanhedrin refers to Sheikh and Paranaki, some of the fallen ones. And notice David Amelach is a person that likewise makes public acknowledgement of more important character. You're right. The Navi tells him he made a mistake. After all, is you're the man? You didn't work? And don't says, you're right. I'm the one. Immediately, an immediate display of complete control to make it about face a reversal. When a person has a car and he's driving it with great power, so you see great power and force a lot of whatever you call horsepower in the car. But to be able to put it into reverse, to stop on a dime, as everyone always says, to turn on a dime and to reverse yourself, that's a different strength of character. For a person to reverse himself instantly, what kind of power and might and glory do you have to have to reverse yourself? Tremendous strength. It's one thing to go with locomotion and with horsepower and with great strength of character. But you're going and you're going and all of a sudden, you see that you're making a mistake, and you immediately make an about face. How much strength is required to stop that momentum and to reverse direction? David Amalek did that. Yehudu did that. Therefore, therefore, your brothers will admit and acknowledge you could make Bayakir Yehudu. You're able to see all that from the last moment. You publicly make a reversal different strength of character. So there are two strands of Melucha. The common denominator between the two is control, self-control. That's the common denominator between the two of them. But two different arenas. One is Yosef's and the other is Yehudah's. Both display monarchy, kingship, regal trappings of self-control. As the Chazal say, Melucha is dying and Melucha. Kings are clashing. Who are we to mix in? There's one, two titans are clashing. We're merely just observing a spectator, the all-star, and the power of their fight. Because each one represents a different kind of Merah and a different strand of Melucha. Melucha and Medallion and two kings are clashing. Different kings of Yosef and different kings of Yehuda. Common denominator is this independence of spirit and the self-control, and that primarily each one is a king over himself. Be a king, you gotta start at home, a king over yourself. As we said from the Ebenezer, everybody's following the streams, flowing with the streams. The one that's able to stop and say, no, I'm not gonna follow the public streams. I'm gonna independently do what's right and wrong, whether it's popular or not, and that's always going to be driven by polls not only are you truly independent but if you have self-control if you control yourself you conquer yourself then you're truly the king as well Yosef and Yehuda 
their kingship, their monarchy stemmed from their control over themselves, that they were kings over themselves. Again, as we said, each one exhibited this display of kingship in a different way, in a different format. One by controlling his time, and one by admission of, of guilt and a reversal. And a reversal is also a sign of strength, of character. This was the ultimate source of their kingship. They became kings because they were kings. They became kings over others because they were worthy candidates for kingship, because they were truly kings over themselves. They were internal kings. And he quotes in the matters that we had earlier, the strength of character and that strength of, of ability where he was able to publicly acknowledge and admit without concern of the humiliation that it was going to that it was going to generate. He could have covered it up, but initially rather than covering up Zui Gmur's powers. This is the strength of a king. To him it is worthy that he should become king. This Gmur's Habas, that he is able to publicly admit without concern for the humiliation, that's the mark of a king. That's the strength of a king. That's the person that's worthy of becoming a king. Ultimately, the final king, which is Mashiach the king. As we pointed out, that you that David, in a similar vein, exhibited this form of kingship to fall and to reverse oneself and to be able to admit one's fall. Mashiach, as we said, is called Paragraphy, for that reason, the son of the fall. We find that the servants of Paro, which were originally opposed to Yosef becoming king, they said, how could you give the crown to someone that was previously a slave let out of prison? And Paro responds, I see them signs of kingship and royalty. I see them the markings of royalty. And therefore, he then quotes another message, another statement of Chazal, what exactly is power referring to? What were these markings of, of royalty that he saw there? So the message explains, Yosef, Yosef, the strength that he exhibited, and that which Yosef himself did, and that he was fed, and that came his mouth. The mouth of the result of what he did. The mouth of the simply, the prophet says, Your mouth shall all the people be His body that didn't his neck which didn't bend to sin, he was given a royal necklace.
Yadav Shlom Misha Shubavera, his hands that didn't come in contact in a sinful fashion, by Yosef HaMelech Tabatim Me'al Yadav, by Yitno Ayad Yosef, his ring was given to Yosef, the ring of Kishon. Yadav Shlom Misha Shubavera, his legs that didn't walk for sin, and he ran away from sin, so he was given to ride the chariot of his mind that decided and didn't think to sin, he's going to be called wise, young and tender in years, wise and sage in wisdom. For the strength of character that allowed Yosef to rule over all of his women, that's why the message goes to such elaborate detail, how Yosef ruled over his hands and his feet and his neck and his body and his mind. He was a king over all of these things. It was this strength of character that he ruled over himself these were the markings of the royalty showing the that were that were displayed by him. And therefore And therefore the empire that Yosef had to first rule over was the empire of himself. To rule over the myriad emotions and thoughts and feelings and instincts in the human being and to control all of them. That's a vast empire for a person to rule over. And if you can rule over that empire, you'll be granted greater empires as well. That's why the Medrash elaborates his hands, his feet, his body, his neck, his, his mouth, his mind. He ruled over all of them. Therefore, he was able to be given, given trappings of Malchus for his hands and for his feet and for his body and for his neck and for his mouth and for his mind as well. The empire of self, that's the empire that has to first be ruled over. Do that, you could then become an emperor over vast empires as well. That's why the Shvatim, the other brothers upon seeing this clash, Tremble. Malachim the dying of Abel and Abel. It wasn't that they were caught up into the regal trappings of royalty that impressed them. What impressed the brothers was the strength of character of these two great, powerful individuals. These two people, these great titans of the spirit. And they see them clashing. That's what was so awe inspiring to them. The the strength of character of a Yehuda and Yosef, rules over themselves. This is how true Jewish leaders become established. Rule over yourself, control yourself, control yourself, and you're truly a king. You can control others. That's the Jewish leadership. Lead and control oneself over one's emotions and thoughts and feelings and instincts, and then you can become a true leader over others as well.
read the, just let's read the same concept. We were going there, Bloch, in the safe of Pinei Das, on Pashat Vayesha, on the Rashi that we saw earlier, on the Pesach Vayakri, Yehuda Vayim Yitzhak, coming many, where, where the where Rashi brings down the safe of Chazal, the Pascal says, in many, we eat the Shevet Yehuda, Chazal, in the Hanu Bloch, in the Yisrael, and the Medrash says on the Rosh Hashanah, who after a beast of the mice of Tavu Yoducha, Achecha, who owes Melachaleh. In a third beer called Ina Hashibisha, the Yucha, who shrouches Hashbra, the same as Moshe. Abba Sheyahu, the Serb, the Sapu, the Spilus, the Halloim, by Kalus, the Sapra Halloim, Shaholam, the Melach, Yakov, the Yu Shomar, the Sipra Mosa, his kind present, Halam Shalit. We began with this earlier, but we switched to, to the other page. So what is this awesome thing of Malchus? Again, it says, What's viewed nowadays as a king is really actually a servant of others. He's constantly beset with the task of making sure that those that give him the trappings of Malchus, they, they find favor in their eyes, and that they're still willing to give him the trappings of Nebuchadnezzar. He's their servant. Who Malchus possesses a cookie into Russell and Malchus, see, do our office. Malchus, where you're totally subservient to others, for your Malchus is not truly Malchus, it's Avdus. You're not independent. Not a king over others, you're totally dependent and subservient to others in order they give you the trappings and the appearances of Malchus. It looks like a king, but you're dependent on others to give you these trappings. It's like plays, it's like acting. And you look like a king, and for all intents and purposes, people view you as a king, but it's only the trappings of kingship. It's not true kingship, only it appears that way. Like a play, like actors. The Torah considers a king only one who is able to to overcome to overcome with virtue of his soul his surroundings. Strength of character. Not to be led by others, but rather to rule over yourself. Before you can become a king over others, you have to first become a king over yourself. This is the greatest measure of patience. The 
What made you the king is the strength of character to not be concerned for the embarrassment or the humiliation that his mission will, will engender. When he could have covered up, and he was able to admit his fault and admit his guilt. And for the sake of truth, he was able to humiliate himself in what Emes the Rashis made, because truth demanded it. He was a servant of truth. And he was willing to humiliate himself for the sake of truth. It's true humanity. Zeus Malchus took the risk of This is what's called worldly. This is what he's called Malchus. Who Malchus to Zeus took the Muhammad This is the kingship that our forefathers, that our ancestors yearned for. Not the trappings of the king, the one that looks like he has the power and the might, but the true king, true self control. This is what our ancestors yearned for in Drenta. This is the kingship that they yearned for. As the Prasik says, the Yosef Hayyab in Mitzrayim, the Yosef Hayyab in Mitzrayim, Saint Yosef before the shepherd, the Yosef Shana Sandalach, the Oymid Mitzitka Yuchil of Asayf, with Saint Yosef remaining as his righteousness throughout from beginning to end. What the Rebellion Mayor Bloch here just adds a little bit of what we saw before is that when is that a person should strive for Malchus. And it is what, something to yearn for and to dream of and to want to achieve. But the true Malchus of Malchus that's the true kingship that we yearn for. That's the true kingship that we seek and, dra- and drive ourselves to and dream about. This is true Malchus. This is what we should look forward to. This is what the brothers were all inspired. This is why they were awestruck. Because they, they saw a display of two kings, two titans of the spirit, clashing and arguing and debating. And they were awestruck at the greatness of the character and the strength of character of the two of them. This is the Malchus that we all know. And it begins at home. It begins with the Malachal.